no matter whether you call these times unprecedented or unpredictable or uncertain, they're crazy. And we've all just lost the majority of our marbles as we ride this roller coaster without a seatbelt. So what have we been doing to survive this never-ending bleep storm? We've been watching a lot of film and a lot of TV. And that's because the creative minds in this industry bring us to worlds that we wish existed. Plus, they figure out how it ends. So there's that. Welcome back to Burning Sofa. This is episode two, part one, where we meet one of the minds who have visualized an entire alternate universe for us. And we could use one of those right about now. Let's go. Hi, my name is Betsy D, and I'm back here with Burning Sofa Podcast, all about the glamorous lives and loves of set decorators in Hollywood, California. Today, we're speaking with a tall, skinny, and rather old production designer named Scott Chambliss, <laughs> who's done too many projects for you to even consider at the moment. But suffice it to say, people hire him way too many times to do science fiction because he's done that fairly successfully over the last, how many years is it, Scott? Oh, I don't know, let me see. Hang on, that's my my line, I'm Scott. Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's been 700 years. (laughs) I'm sick of it. I'd like to do some period pieces. You know, I love what you've done with your hair. For being 700 years old, I would think you wouldn't have much left, but look at that. But enough about my chin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey, everybody. It's Burning Sofa, and we are back. I'm Betsy D, for real. And speaking of utopia, we have got an amazing guest with us today. He is the first production designer on this show, actually, and he's the outrageously talented and very funny Scott Chambliss. Hey, Scott. Hello. (laughs) This is a great open. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Sure. Before we go full tilt into picking your creative brains, though, I just want uh, to let the audience get a load of a fraction of your impressive resume, if I may. That's a lot to live up to. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Chambliss here is an Art Directors Guild and Primetime Emmy Award-winning production designer who's been um, honored for his work on Star Trek Into Darkness, 2013, directed by J.J. Abrams, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, hilarious sci-fi, Cowboys and Aliens, another sci-fi adventure. You're spotting a trend here. This is uh, director John Favreau. Then there's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and Mission Impossible 3, starring, of course, Tom Cruise, directed by J.J. Abrams. And... Now, Mr. Chambliss has not been sitting around resting on his laurels. He is part of the team behind the soon-to-be-released Voyagers with Colin Farrell with our very own Cal Laux as set decorator. So that's kind of cool. And currently in prep for Citadel, the Amazon series, and we will be excited to talk about all that good stuff. But right now, we're going to talk about one film in particular. We're going to talk about Tomorrowland today because we're ahead of our time. (laughs) We're also going to talk a little bit about collaborating styles and a few other fun things. So we hope that we can then twist your arm to come back next week. I'll check my busy calendar these days. Jeez. (laughs) Uh, Specifically Thursday at one o'clock. Okay, fine. (laughs) For our audience, Tomorrowland, uh, that was a 2015 adventure starring George Clooney and a very intense, very watchable Hugh Laurie, I must say. (laughs) Mm. 
And it's um, uh, this young woman, Casey, played by Britt Robertson, is a young activist, and she has this terrible habit of winding up in jail all the time. And suddenly she's in possession of this lapel pin that when she touches it, it takes her to an alternative universe called Tomorrowland, which is definitely not like any place she's ever been, but she keeps wanting to go back. The point of the movie is our culture has really lost its sense of optimism. And the intention there was to point that out in a constructive way and in an inspiring way, Mm -hmm. which Tomorrowland was to represent being utopia that could rekindle even the possibility of a human being in the audience becoming optimistic about our future in the world in America. Um, But this, this story became too muddled. You know, this may be one of those examples. We, we do hear this from um, professionals in, in interviews that a lot of times it can be a really great project, but end up not being a great movie. Oh, of course. I mean, the experience itself doesn't guarantee whether the movie is going to be good or bad at all. Well, I'd love to talk about that experience because there were astounding sets that were, of course, you know, so unfamiliar, but really brilliantly believable. So when you decided to do this film, what information did you have to work with? This movie was a unicorn in lots of respects, including um, the information that I had or didn't have to begin with. Um, When I went in to meet Brad, the director and the writer, Damon Lindelof, they gave me the script, of course, and their backstory for um, Tomorrowland. Um, And (laughs) there was a big hole in the script. We're first introduced in the story to Tomorrowland itself, Damon and Brad hadn't actually decided what that was. So the script that I read right off the bat literally had all the introductory scenes that led right up to Casey finding this strange pin, touching it, and suddenly being transported into a field where in the background, right behind her, was huge Tomorrowland. She turns around Mm -hmm. and sees it. Now, in the script, it literally was wow. a paragraph that the writer said, now she sees Tomorrowland and it's the most amazing thing she's ever seen before. Now we don't know what it is and we don't know why people are there or what they're doing there, but we do know it's unlike anything anyone's ever seen before. And then the script <laughs> continues onwards. She's in the swamp with her pen going, oh, I got to get back. I got to get back. That's what I had to work with. <laughs> and go Tomorrowland (laughs) yeah so when you read this paragraph what did you think Tomorrowland was well the before I even started pondering what Tomorrowland was the first thing I thought was why did you write a script called Tomorrowland without an idea of what Tomorrowland is but you know on the other hand that's why I wanted to join the party was to help figure out what Tomorrowland actually was. Yeah, tell us how, what's the process for interpreting and moving forward from nothing? Well, ultimately, it's, you know, broad stroke, it's a lot of collaboration with a lot of people. And after, I think it was about two, two and a half weeks uh, of working with the writer, Damon Lindelof, Brad Bird, the director. Um, some concept artists. This is, you know, just a brief introductory overview. Some storyboard folks just spitballing ideas. Hmm. I had a a notion of my own that um, I was ready to run with to create my own presentation. And what that was, was the um, notion that Tomorrowland was 
created by um, a group of insanely intelligent people, consultants, professionals, all that stuff. But for my presentation purposes, I was focusing on engineering, science, and art with the idea that the three work together and came up with um, special departments where different things were happening. Like the Plus department. you could do a TED talk. <laughs> yeah. One of my departments um, was engineering and um, an artist based on a Japanese calligraphy uh, artist, which was the department of urban planning, but the urban planning Templates were created by the Japanese calligrapher whose work was to specifically get gigantic calligraphy brushes. This is a real artist, by the way, wow. with buckets of ink, buckets of water, and high-speed camera who would you know, slosh in a combination of the water and the ink and throw it up into the air in this big you know, sloppy whoosh. And the high-speed camera would capture all of these images and what it what it was capturing were these incredibly dynamic kinetic shapes where you know water flows and droplets were interacting with each other and making the water move a different way and all of this stuff with the grander notion that the idea of urban planning would embrace the notion of an adaptive environment concept where it's not just a fixed entity it shapes and morphs along with the population. Ah, so that's the engineering. And then what about science? Another one was um, the uh, Department of Bioluminescent Flora and Fauna, developing living things, plants, trees, and all yeah. of that to create their own luminescence. Did you know about bioluminescent trees? Or uh, first of all, do they exist? Mm -mm. No, they don't exist. All this stuff is made up. So I'm an idiot. <laughs> Okay, I admit it, I was fooled. <laughs> Great. But there's, I mean, if you just combine engineering, science, and art, and take ideas that are out there and push them together in a way that you can weave a society, a physical, practical society together, mm -hmm. where they're all equal partners in the manifestation of this utopia that you want to build, I think, you know, our world could be a much different place and mm -hmm. so much more exciting and you know, full of hope. Right. You know, right now we don't have a lot of it. Yeah. And I think there's, I mean, it's, it's fine to make pretty things that glow. All of that's great. But my, my goal for Tomorrowland, hopefully it's a little bit manifested, was that the beauty of the place itself was going to be a product of the function and and the the strength of the thoughts that went into it. It wasn't, you know, the goal of creating something stylish and beautiful and fabulous. It's about coming up with solid ideas that make the world a better place. And one of the wonderful products of those strong, clear thought processes is beauty. Why the hell shouldn't it be? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could use a little bit of that right about now. Yeah. Well, that made me sad. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but hopeful. There you go. I'm, I'm going to stick with hopeful. If there's a conceptual flaw to the story, I think it's the fact that Tomorrowland really wasn't defined beyond a tease. I do remember I had this most visceral reaction to it when she first walks in and it was, it was magical. But didn't you want to spend more time there or at least go yes. back to it? Yes. Yeah. Plus I wanted one of those floaty pools. <laughs> 
here's a good Brad Bird story. One of the Brad didn't have a lot of rules to set up because it, we were all going all out in every direction to figure out what Tomorrowland might be. But one of the first things he said to me was, I don't want anything floating in the air. This all needs to be very grounded and very accessible and all of that. And so this is in the same meeting, mind you. <laughs> and suddenly he holds up this little buck slip that has a doodle on it. It's these ellipses all just kind of around each other with little squiggles by them. And he said, wouldn't it be really cool if there were these floating swimming pools? You just told us <laughs> nothing could do that. Yeah, but I really like this idea. This is a really cool idea. And of course it was. It was one of the best ideas in Tomorrowland. Hello, Burners. Did you know that there's a Patreon page for those of you who like to dig deeply, ask questions, probe, discover, learn new things? And you are saying right now, and I hear you, where, oh, where is said page? We are at patreon.com slash burning sofa. You just get on over there, choose the membership level that works for you and hit it, man. We would love to have you as a member. Are you a follower? Because if you are, we are a leader. Mm, works out. All you have to do is go to Twitter or Instagram and you'll find us. We are at burning sofa pod. So let's get back to our fun times talking to Scott Chambliss about how incredible movies get made. So help us understand, how do you establish the working relationship between you and the director and producers? It's a really different situation if you're working with a director that you've never worked with before. Mm -hmm. The learning, getting to know each other process takes the entire project and it really isn't until the very end of the job that you have a, a grasp of who your primary collaborator is. I've, I've found that to be true. In my relationship with J.J. Abrams that lasted about 10 consecutive years, it's a rare gift that anybody gets to have to, mm -hmm. to have that longevity with a collaborator that you treasure. Because we got to know each other, the longer we work together and the more the responsibilities and the pressures of the jobs, the trust built, concurrently. Those are the treasures for me in terms of the collaborative relationships, the one that you get to build over project after project. Do you ever have any big fat fights? I just need to know. <laughs> Let's see. The, I, you know, I always punch upwards. If I'm going to fight with anybody, it's going to be producer or director. Because they can take it. <laughs> well, because I don't have fights with my my crew people because we're all a team you know they're supporting each other and if if something is coming at me it's coming at me usually from the production end of things and not not from within my own team and if it is coming at me from within my own team that's a team player who shouldn't be with me working with a, a new set decorator I, I think lynn mcdonald this was your very first time working together and you were in vancouver Right. And that was the first time that I'd done a production that was going to be based in Vancouver. Sometimes it's to your advantage to hire a set decorator in the city that you're going to work in if you don't know it. And Lynn's been based there uh, for a long time. She has a great track record and uh, an excellent reputation. And upon meeting each other, we had a, a very nice personality click there. It, it felt good to be in the room with her. And that's, that's a huge part. That's helpful. <laughs> of, of the way you get started right there. Um, then like with any primary collaboration, you have to find out 
where the other person comes from in detail and how they speak verbally about visual things. And you discover together what visual cues you each respond to or don't respond to. You learn the other person's taste, but even more important, how their brain processes information. Was there a sort of a significant moment when you said, oh, I made the right choice. Lynn is so it. There were clues along the way that, that we were going to be a good fit together. Primarily, honestly, the first time that I made her laugh, I was working really hard to make her laugh in the process of our doing our work together because that's an important ingredient to me. Who you are. Just have a good time. <laughs> enjoy it and find the pleasure in it. And when she finally did, I thought, oh, good, traction, traction. And, you know, I amused myself by thinking the work started becoming a little bit more layered and she started taking a few more risks in showing me thoughts and ideas simply because we were feeling more and more comfortable with each other. And there was, there was one set in particular that um, we were working on that came up early enough in the process. It was the interior of crazy science hoarder George Clooney's house. For the record, everyone, the crazy hoarder was played by George Clooney. He was booted out of Tomorrowland as a kid. He was, and he, <laughs> he apparently collected every piece of hardware, metal, furniture, and electronica that he could ever find ever since in that house. And she made the most amazing creative choices of elements to put in there and gave it a whole backstory of like, well, it was his father's house initially. It was the house he grew up in and there are remnants of that in the house. And she had one of her, um, her crew guys, her swing guy, swing gang guys who was obsessive in detailing mania, which he created these idea boards made out of three-dimensional pieces and images. And he created um, invention projects for the work table. He did all of this minutely, intricately detailed stuff that you could put a camera up close on and just follow the thought press process and understand what was going on there. Wow, it he's a keener. <laughs> it was crazy. It was so beautiful. And everything about the um, decoration of that set had that level of thought to it and sophistication as well. There was a, his whole surveillance apparatus was a brilliant synthesization. Synthesization, is that a word? Sure, synthesis. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's all mashed up together in such a smart way. <laughs> <laughs> Another incredible set was the spaceship interior. <laughs> the flying kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you call it that? Yeah, um, that's that teeny rocket interior. That that was one of those cases where we were at the end of the shoot, and our budget was very limited. Mm. And I came loaded with some Star Trek baggage at that point. I wanted to make sure that any spaceship that I had to do in that film didn't look like it flew out of Star Trek and into Tomorrowland. So I, I specifically didn't want any digital readout screens, anything like that. The, the moment for that hit in the script was so fast. We just saw people getting into it, buckling right. up and that's it. And I thought it would be fun to invoke the Ed Wood techniques of filmmaking where you get <laughs> pie plates and plastic forks and shit like that. We invoke Ed Wood on this show all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? <laughs> That's awesome. I love hearing that. 
seriously, explain, can you explain the kitchenness to us? Yeah, and I've done this before, not just here. Assembling tech, you know, there's, there's so many ingredients that go into a tech look, and you can tweak it any, into any direction that you want to. And then in, in this instance, Lynn and I wanted to tweak it into a very utilitarian, very streamlined sort of look. So a favorite place of mine to go to to look for gizmos and shapes and forms and all that is ikea in the kitchen department the ikea the ikea, IKEA that we know yeah of course look at their kitchen canisters and their little um silverware racks and anything like that also office office furniture and i i just have to say scott that when i go to ikea i don't i look at those same things and i don't see a spaceship <laughs> yeah, but if you're just looking for shapes, interesting. Shapes. Right? I mean, think of all the little desk divider thingies and the canisters that have all the little compartments on them. And then also think about your all the cases of wine you have delivered and all of those, all the packing that has been vac formed or, you know, formed somehow that create these weird insulating shapes around things. All of that stuff is, is sculptural material to work with. For the spaceship in Tomorrowland, that's what I suggested we should be doing. And at that point, Lynn, it was at the end of our, our experience together, so she was, she, her eyes had rolled as far back into her head as they were going to go already anyway. So she kind of listened and went, uh-huh, Scott, okay, that's fine, that's funny. Does it have to be IKEA stuff? I said, no, you can add other things too. So she went to her collection of all of her antique things and shapes and weird stuff and tools and all of that like you would because, you know, a collection of rich, varied objects is really cool and started trying to arrange something that felt tech. It didn't work at all. So we went to the, sh the store together and started pulling down all the aluminum canisters and all the, you know, things that I was just describing at the shop and went back to the work tables in the studio and started making groupings of things. And after I made like a table full of groupings, she, was, she got it. It was like, oh, that's <laughs> what you're talking about. Oh, that's see. where my colander went. I see where you're going with this. <laughs> so she and her whole team did this fabulous array. They took over the whole workshop. I think there were six big work tables that they made all these groupings that could easily translate into tech panels. And we finalized what we wanted in each section and she did it right there and it was great. And we finished the set, we loaded it in, in Valencia in Spain on our location. It was beautiful. And she was so proud of it. And she took me over to see the, the final tweak of it before we showed Brad. And she just stood there and I, complimented her and said, Lynn, I have to tell you, this is the finest kitchen set I have ever seen. <laughs> very happy about that. <laughs> so in the context of Tomorrowland, I mean, obviously there's a lot of fantastical stuff in there. Can you just give us a little peek at where physical ends and where computer generated begins or, or other visual effects? Yeah, sure. It's, it's true in science fiction and fantasy films too. Um, often a scene takes place in some magnificent, unreal environment. We decide as a team what part of that space is going to be built practically, what part is going to be addressed practically, what are the actors going to need to interact with, whether it's something as simple as furniture and props or something more detail-oriented that has to do with stunts or special effects that need to be physical or anything like that where you need breakaways. Those are all decisions that come into play 
with the notion that a huge part of the environment is going to be manifested. It'll be designed already, but it will be manifested in post-production via CG. More and more of that is starting to happen now as the technology to do that has uh, expanded beyond simple blue screen or green screen stages to huge LED projection walls now that provide interactive light onto a set piece that has been constructed that the actors are working with in the middle of this space, which is something that old green screen technology couldn't do. You know, as this medium is very plastic anyway, the techniques continue to evolve over time, how we make films and how we visualize films in a practical way to shoot them. In very fundamental ways, our jobs as designers and set decorators and art directors doesn't change. We are hired to be visual storytellers. And the core of what we're doing is figuring out the best way to create the best visual world for the story. The tools may be different, but the heart of what we do and why we do it remains consistent. And I think it's important to keep our focus on the storytelling itself and become less obsessive about the technology and the technological evolutions because they are not the point, they are the tools. Well, Scott Chambliss, thank you so much for joining us today um, on Zoom because we are very good social distancers. And Star Trek fans, we have an alert for you. Priority one message coming in from Starfleet on Secure Channel. That's right. Scott will be back next week to talk all about Star Trek Into Darkness from 2013 and some inner details around how that got made. Plus Mission Impossible 3. This just gets better all the time. So please do come back and we will see you then. But in the meantime, if you would like to stay connected via Interstellar Transmitter, we are here at Burning Sofa Pod. That's right, at Burning Sofa Pod. And that would be for both Twitter and and Interstellar Gram. That's right, Intergalactic Gram. That's what I think IG sits down. Fuck.